You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and my guest today is Arlena Allen. Arlena is someone who helps ambitious women quit drinking. She has a very powerful and inspirational story of her own to share, which we get into in this call. Um, On her website at SoberLifeSchool.com, she'll teach you how to stop drinking in 30 days. She's got a free sobriety reset mini course that you can download and get into. Um, One of the things that she does is she helps you stop drinking without having to go to rehab or AA and things like that. So um, if you or anyone you, you know is having difficulty with quitting the addiction of alcohol, this is a must listen episode. So with that, let's get into it. Here I am with Arlena Allen. All right, here I'm here with Arlena. How are you doing today? Well, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, we are going to be talking about self-esteem today. You, uh, that's, that's your topic of expertise, which is very cool. Um, seems to be uh, a topic that a lot of people are very interested in. So first and foremost, welcome to the, to the call. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to all your amazing guests. So I feel like I'm, I'm honored to be in such great company. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I think maybe first and foremost, it'd be helpful to understand how you even got into this. We'll kind of back our way into it so we can have some context as to where you found your inspiration for all this. <laughs> sure, sure. So I um, actually have spent the last 26 years in uh, sort of the recovery world, the recovery from drugs and alcohol. I had uh, some issues in my early 20s. Actually, I had some issues for a very long time, but <laughs> things started to peak in my early 20s. By my mid-20s, I kind of crashed and burned and um, ended up going to the traditional recovery route of 12 steps and, and secret communities, <laughs> as they say. And they um, say I'm not well, I mean, it's anonymous. They say alcoholics anonymous. So, okay. um, it, and listen, we're talking 26 years ago. So in the very beginning, they didn't talk about it as openly as we do now. And okay. so I'm sort of one of those people who is sort of broken tradition. And I do talk about it. I'm very public about my recovery because there are so many people that are suffering from addictions, whether it's alcohol addictions, drug addictions, there's gambling, shopping, porn, I mean, even fitness, I mean, workaholism, there's so many things that people do to distract from the way they feel, the present Mm -hmm. moment. Um, So I, I feel like it's really important to sort of get some constructive framework around, you know, why did, why are, why are these things even happening? You know, and in my mind, you know, everything boils down to your level of self-esteem and sort of the mantra I live by is that we only allow into our lives what we believe we deserve. And so mm-hmm. if we can change the, what we believe we deserve through, and I call it self-esteem because I sort of like to meet people where they're at. Like when you say self-esteem, most people get, okay, it's how I feel about myself in the world. You know, what am I, but most people aren't really in touch with how they really feel about themselves. I mean, people who struggle with addictions obviously have very low self-esteem. And so um, over the 26 years I've been in this recovery world, I've seen some definite things that work to help people rebuild self-esteem after addiction because people that are, you know, coming back from addiction and I just call it addiction. It doesn't matter if it's drugs or alcohol or anything. Mm -hmm. People that are coming back from addiction are 
typically having to overcome some very negative experiences, right? Like people mm -hmm. do things under the influence that they would not normally do um, if they were stone cold sober, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if I can help, and I actually teach this uh, self-esteem class to women in, uh, that are incarcerated in the California women's prison system and the Arizona state prison system. And I'm extending it to others as well. It's sort of a, it just started organically and, and there's a story behind it, but it's starting to move into others. So I'm thinking if I can teach these people who are coming back from, you know, such devastating circumstances and help them get to a place where they feel good about who they are and at peace, really, and all things lead to, if I can just be at peace, everything will mm -hmm. be okay, right? Mm -hmm. Peace and joy are sort of the end result of all mm -hmm. the work that I'm asking people to do to rebuild their self-esteem. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned a bit of a, a turbulent 20s, uh, <laughs> yeah. decade in the 20s. So how did you what, what, what was sort of the, um, what was the epiphany that you had that, that turned, you know, that gave you the pivot point so that you got into, you know, you, you said you went to, I guess, AA and then, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what was, what's different about what you're doing than maybe what AA is doing? What was the insight that you saw there? And well, let me, I'll start, if it's okay, I'll just start with why I ended up going there in the first place, which sure. was, um, I started to question my drinking when I was, um, about 23, 22, 23, I was in an outside sales position and sales is a very, has a very heavy drinking culture, right? Uh -huh. Like you take your customers, out, <laughs> you know, yes. what I'm saying? Uh, you take your customers out to drink. My, my boss drank like a fish. Um, I mean, that was just part of the culture is you take customers out, you make friends, you have like these bonding experiences, your friends forever and lots of business gets done at the yes. bar. Yes. Um, However, um, I was one of those people who had some consequences. Like uh, I, was, <laughs> I was one of those girls. I just considered myself a party girl and I thought it was normal for my age to be doing like these wild things like sowing your oats and mm -hmm. whatever. And, uh, and I was doing all that stuff. There were many occasions where I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh my God, that's not my ceiling. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have since made a big joke out of it. And that's how I sort of dealt with a lot of the things I was doing that was not in line with my value system is I would make jokes about it. I would minimize, I would make a joke about it and try to brush it off. But there just came a point where I just couldn't brush it off anymore. I had um, what they commonly refer to in 12 step circles as a moment of clarity. Like I bottomed out, like I had this evening that was a terrible evening. I was with my sister like uh, lots of lots of bad things happened that night. I hurt my sister physically. Mm -hmm. um, I just lost my mind. I was like, I'm just one of those people that does not process alcohol normally. Like there are enzymes in your body that help you to uh, metabolize alcohol. And when I ingest alcohol, I cannot predict my behavior. Mm. Yeah, I used to say that I had two alter egos. It was either Wimpy Wendy or Badass Betsy because I was either fighting or crying by the oh, end of the night. Oh, it was yeah. like... <laughs> It was not a fun date <laughs> most times. I was single for a long time. Weird. Yeah. Why don't there's a connection? Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm quick like that with making the connections. 
<laughs> but uh, I had a really, after that really bad evening with my sister, she went to a program called Al-Anon and Al-Anon is sort of the program for uh, family members that have an alcoholic in their life. And so yeah. it was started, it started out being for like the wives, the wives, cause this was, you know, back when AA began, it was predominantly a men's issue. Right. Women were in the closet secretly suffering, but, um, <laughs> I suppose, but, uh, yeah. So Al-Anon was typically the program for the wives. Cause it's funny how water seeks its own level. So, yes as sick as the alcoholic becomes, it's like how mentally ill does the wife have to be to stay? Yes. Right. It's like, it's a slow degeneration of self-esteem. It's like, dysfunction breeds dysfunction. It really does. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. So, um, they, they began this other program for the friends and family members of, and so that's where my sister went. And I was like, what? I was so offended. I was like, you went there with me. And, uh, did you, did you self-identify as an alcoholic at that point? I did not. I started, but that's what started me asking the questions. And there were some other things that had happened that like, I never got arrested. I never lost a job. I was always, I always was super self. Yeah. High functioning. Thank you. I was super self-sufficient. Um, so that wasn't the issue, but my relationships were in turmoil. I hated who I was, to be mm. perfectly honest. I hated mm -hmm. who I was. And um, so anyway, my, that began when my sister went to Al-Anon after this horrible night where I was nearly arrested, but I wasn't arrested because I had been dating, <laughs> dating a married police officer. Don't tell anyone. Um, I, I joke around now. I say the only married man I sleep with now is my husband, which he appreciates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wink, wink. But right, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, my value system was, and that's not the girl I, I was raised to be. I grew, I grew up in the church. My parents are very nice people. They, they did not display any of this craziness that I was <laughs> embodying. So it was Okay. So this would be interesting to see how we get to the, the self-esteem issue because you did have a, a self-proclaimed good upbringing. So go on. Well, we... I, I said I had nice parents, okay. um, but yes. I, I was actually, I was actually abused by a neighbor when I was very okay. young. Right. Okay. And so that was probably one of the things that uh, made me feel like I wasn't a good person. Yes. Coupled with uh, growing up in a religious environment where there's this constant striving for perfection, which is unattainable. Mm -hmm. And I found myself falling short all the time. And at some point I gave up, I decided I was, I, listen, I was, it wasn't that I wasn't asking God to fix me. I was always begging him to like, make me different and better. And, but that's the presupposition that there was something wrong with me. Yes that I was bad. I didn't realize it until I got into recovery and therapy that the presupposition there was is that I was bad and I didn't even realize it, but I was like always, you know, begging God to come down from the heavens and fix me. I and hope, I hope people, I hope religious people really let that sink in. Cause yeah. it's, it's not, I, I don't, it's not intentional. I don't think with a lot no. of them, but, mm -mm. but it, it, it does create that presupposition that you're that you're broken that you're not okay that you're not enough um that's a it can be a very psychologically um twisted thing to have to to grow up with yeah which is sad because the whole 
purpose of, you know, the whole embodiment of Jesus was about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I totally missed the message. Yeah. I didn't get the message that I was already forgiven and that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that I, this, my human frailties was the thing that sort of brought me closer to like a spirit. Like, so I, I did have to, at some point separate spirituality from religion. Yes. Because uh, so I, I was I was on this thought this um, this line of thinking that okay so I was asking God to fix me and heal me and make me better or different or whatever I don't know what I thought I was going to get um, and I kept failing I felt like I was failing and so at some point I gave up and I decided well if I can't be good I'm going to be good at being bad and I decided I was just going to have a good time and so that's <laughs> what I did <laughs> so. Um, you know, that's kind of where I was at. And I just threw out all of my, I just went total rebellion, total rebellion mode. So, and as later come to find out that when children are abused, especially girls, um, they become promiscuous later in life, which is so sad because what do we do to girls that are promiscuous? We shame them. Like we, we shame them. We put labels on them. And I mean, high school is a terrible time for a girl to be promiscuous because she becomes this ostracized, uh, you know, wearing the scarlet letter and it increases the shame and it and sort of does, it's like a vicious cycle. So, mm-hmm. man, I have teenage boys and I remember one time one of them came home and they said something about a girl and I was like, hold up. Mm-hmm. We are going to have a discussion about this because what most people don't know is that, you know, girls or women that are promiscuous are typically survivors of sexual abuse. So, mm-hmm let's be very careful about how we, we treat um, the women that we come in contact with. Mm-hmm. So, but that, but this is all, this is all why. So yes, my parents were very nice people. My mother had no coping skills to share with me. She, she was, um, she was born and raised in Mexico city. Her mother um, started having kids when she was 14 years old. Wow. She had like, yeah, I mean, back then, and she's 94, I think now. <laughs> yeah. So back then it was like, that was not unusual, I guess. Right. But she had, she had no coping skills to give to my mother. So my mother had no coping skills to give to me. And I had all these big feelings and she just didn't know what to do with me. So, um, her methodology was to get angry and, you know, that's when you're small, that's a big feeling that kind of shuts you down. So I learned very early on to disassociate from my feelings. Are you familiar with, um, childhood emotional neglect? Um, I mean, I experienced it, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a thing now. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, what's her name? Uh, Janice Webb, I think um, she has a book on it. Uh, very interesting because what, what you're saying uh, is what a lot of people have experienced where, you know, hey, I, I had good parents. I, I you know, grew yeah. up in a relatively affluent neighborhood. I got a good education, but why, what's, there's something missing. And, you know, in your case, you had abuse and in some cases people had other things that they dealt with, but sometimes it's just purely the negotiation, uh, emotional Emotional neglect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which coupled on top of, you know, trauma and PTSD and, and actual abuse and those kind of things can be very, uh, to me, I think that might be the most damaging part of it. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Because what happens in abuse is just a short amount of time. It's everything that happens afterwards. That's where the trauma, it's the interpretation of the The experience. Yeah. The the story. And then uh, we assign meaning to, and it's typically not a very good one. I don't know why we don't, you know, if you have, 
and this is like the Schrodinger's cat theory where it's like all things being equal. Why don't we choose the positive thing? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we, mm-hmm. we don't, we, we choose the negative thing. And I think it's because like I had all these negative feelings and no way to process them to resolution. Mm-hmm. That's not something I learned until much later. Um, which is a really important key to building self-esteem is that we need to be able to acknowledge and process and resolve and experience that forgiveness or letting go uh, in order to receive the good things. Yes. Instead, but most people, what we do is distract or have some sort of strategy to take us out of the present moment. And that's where things like addictions come into play. They're very, any point of obsession or addiction is to take you away from something that you can't bear to feel. And that's your mind's way of protecting you. But yes. And oftentimes it's subconscious, is it? It's all subconscious because subconscious, and that's a big part of the class that I teach is that um, all this stuff is, most of us operate from um, a level of subconscious uh, belief patterns, right? And all that a belief is, is an idea that's repeated um, enough. And then it becomes sort of implanted in your psyche, your, your whole brain. I'm, I'm such a, I'm so obsessed with uh, neuroscience because it, you know, it explains a lot of the things like um, your, your brain is looking to be super efficient. So it creates these patterns and it, and it, and it houses them in your subconscious mind. And so most of the time we're just sort of like moving through life in an unconscious way. Yes. We're just like, like lots of things are automated. Like they say that you're, you know, your subconscious mind is processing like millions of bits of information per second, but you know, you need to be able to focus on certain things, right. To get your, you know, we're doing a podcast, you have a job, you have relationships. It's like, you can't be processing all the information that's coming in. So a lot of it is automated. Yes. So that we, we develop these messed up sort of processes in childhood as survival mechanisms, right? And then we transfer them into our adult life. And what you'll see, and it, and it comes out in funny ways. Like you will see people say, I'm never going to be like my parents. And then what happens? They grow up. We see this in in, uh, rooms that people are recovering from alcoholism. They say, I'm never going to drink like my mom, or I'm never going to drink like my dad. And then what happens? They drink exactly like their mom or their dad. You know, we're, we're, we're repeating patterns because they were in, you know, implanted in our brains subconsciously from a very early age. And so that's where we're operating from. So this whole idea of in adulthood, we have an opportunity and this is actually the blessing part of addiction is that it brings you to your knees. It brings you to this place of urgency and focus. Mm. And that's re- what's required for behavior change is urgency and focus. And so you, that's why deadline people work so well under deadlines is that, <laughs> you know, this, this disease, it's like, it's going to kill you if you don't look at what the cause is. And most people are so disassociated from their feelings that they don't understand what what the cause is. Like, Mm -hmm. they're like, how did I get here? Why am I like this? It's like, well, you've detached from your feelings for so long, you don't even recognize. Like when someone hurts your feelings, most people just shut down or stuff it or something. It's like their hurt button is on delayed reaction. And then it comes out sideways later. You know, like when I drank, everything I had been suppressing would come out. That's where their badass Betsy or the wimpy Wendy thing was coming Mm. out. Everything I would suppress would come out during that time. So, you know, my game plan now is, you know, 
those people that are suffering from addiction, it's like, you actually have a very unique opportunity. It's almost like a near-death experience. Like a lot of people change with that near-death experience phenomenon, but it's like, you have this opportunity because you're so beaten down by your addiction that you're like, okay, like you're in this place of surrender. Okay, fine. What, what, what is it that I need to do? And that's right. when, that's when people are finally willing and open enough to let their mental defenses down to start letting some of the solution in. Gotcha. So w- when was it that you started to create an actual program? Like what, Tell us that story of when you decided I'm going to actually strike as opposed to, you know, having other therapists or whoever else, why, why you, like, what was the, the inclination for you to do that? Well, over, over the last 26 years, I started pulling out, like, I just have like this obsession for information. Maybe that's my new addiction, but at least they, they say that, uh, <laughs> that you could turn your, <laughs> turn your defects into assets. And so I have like this thirst of not for knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so over the years I would help other women, uh, re, you know, go through like the 12 step process and things, but I was also uh, exposed to all this other stuff like EMDR therapy and tapping and positive psychology and, all these different somatic forms of healing. Um, actually, it's kind of funny. Before I got sober, I uh, was introduced to like Tony Robbins, and that was like the first time. This was in my early, tw- probably around 2022, 20, where I was like, "Oh my gosh, you mean if you change your mind, you can change your life, you change mm-hmm. your beliefs?" And I think that's sort of it. Kind of laid the foundation so that when I was ready for a change, when I was finally beaten down enough to be open to other things, I feel like that was like a good found. Like it planted a seed somehow that mm-hmm. it's like, "Oh, okay, I get it." if I change my mind, everything else in my life will change. Mm-hmm. So, but, so I started in, incorporating all these other things and I was sharing them with the girls that I was, or the women that I was working with. And I found that it, like I, the lights would come on and their lives would begin to change. And I tell you what, there is no better high than to help somebody out of their suffering, like when the denial breaks and they can finally see clearly. I mean, for me to be a witness and to be a part of that, like, I'm just, I can just be a facilitator because a lot of people need this, but not a lot of people are willing to do the action. So I'm always so grateful for the people who are ready and willing to take some action to start changing their lives. Cause it, it's such a waste to watch somebody suffer needlessly. Yes. <clears throat> so, um, so you started to implement this with friends and maybe friends of friends, et cetera. And, and so I'm assuming that, that people started to come to you and, and ask you for help. And did you just sort of back into it then and, and fall into it or? Yeah. So I was in this, I was in this community. So um, AA is a very large community and because of they really, there's a lot of focus on time. Like how much time do you have sort of, which, and I always, I always feel like there's a double, it's a double-edged sword because for people, like it took me two years of questioning my drinking before I was able to go to a 12-step program because the barrier to entry to those programs is to admit that you're an alcoholic. Mm. So the barrier to entry is really high. Mm. And um, that's not even a term in the DSM-5 anymore. Now it's alcohol use disorder. And I think that's a little more palatable 
Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that, so I, because of my time and, you know, my husband was also, he's, he got sober when he was 18 and he's 51 now, 50, 51. Um, so, uh, we sort of had a high visibility in this community. So, you know, people would come to us a lot and ask us to speak. And, and, um, so I was helping, you know, I had a large, um, group of girls, women that I was helping, but I was it, like supplementing with all this other stuff mm. that I thought was really important. So um, at some point I was like, you know what, now there's this whole sober curious movement. People are addressing, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to be able to catch people? Like once I had a really bad experience and started to question my drinking, it took me two years of wrestling with it before I was ready for a solution. I Mm. thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to shortcut that process for Mm -hmm. some people uh, who aren't, who are not ready to go sort of the 12 step route or not ready for, you know what, let's catch people before they have DUIs. Let's catch people before they're, they really become like desperately addicted and have to go to rehab. Let's, let's catch people. And you know, that beginning that sober curious, uh, areas. So Mm -hmm. I am sort of coming at this from a self-esteem, like sobriety through self-esteem. And a lot of times, a lot of the other solutions, it's like, it depends on how much somebody, like everybody's different. There's really no one size fits all Mm -hmm. type of solution. But in my mind, it's like, if your self-esteem is so low that you have even trouble receiving the solution, which you know, a lot of times it's packaged up in love. It's like, I am not worthy of this solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind mm-hmm. of like a, it's a terrible catch 22. And a lot of people take it to the point where it's like, I'm either going to die or I'm going to seek help. Like that's where most people, t- and that's what's considered like the bottom. Mm-hmm. And then the, you have a moment of clarity and then you can, but I'm like, wow, do we have to get to that place? How about we start addressing, <laughs> how about we start addressing self-esteem issues before it gets that bad? So. Right. Absolutely. So um, give us an overview of what your, what your program involves. It's six weeks. Is that correct? Yeah. It's, it's called reinvent because what we're doing is re, we're reinventing how you see yourself. Right. And so I typically start off with, I have the outline up, excuse me if I have to look away for a second. Um, But I I like to start off with the um, idea of what is it that you want, right? Let's, there's this idea of, um, you know, what you think about, you bring about, right? So it's like, I try to tell people, let's stop focusing on what we don't want and start focusing on what we do want. And a lot of times people don't even know what they want. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, if we, if I could wave a magic wand, what would your, what would your life be like? You know, so we do some exercises. So I'm going to give you some exercises. So for your listeners, you know, get out a piece of paper and a pen because I'm going to give you the exercises that you can do on your own. Um, All the information really is out there for free, but I'm going to give you the exercises that will help you start rebuilding your self-esteem. And sometimes it's not the information. Listen, if information was the cure-all, we'd all have millions of dollars in six-pack apps. It's it's the application that's tricky. So in my workshop, we actually do the work in class, but uh, I want as many people to have just these ideas as possible. So we start off with um, what would your perfect day look like? And so it's interesting. um, 
I think you're a fan of Tim Ferriss, aren't you? Did I, do I have that right? Yes. Well, he had, he had a guest on there who was talking about your perfect day exercise. And I've heard this a few other times, like how magical this can be because it starts to shift your subconscious mind on what you do want, right? So you write down your perfect day exercise and you use all the five senses, right? Smell, touch, taste, everything. And uh, you visualize what your perfect day would look like from the moment that you wake up, like, where are you? Who are you with? What do you do throughout the entire day? But what are the feelings that you want to feel throughout that day? Mm. What is it? It's feeling the feelings as if it's already happened. Mm -hmm. And that's a little prelude into the daily exercise that I have people do. But it starts off with getting a vision of what you do want, right? And then um, that's what they do in class. And, we and then we start talking about principles like laws of attraction, right? Which sounds totally like non-scientific, but it really, it, the law of attraction is basically um, what you think about, you bring about, right? Mahatma Gandhi was famous for saying, you know, your thoughts become your, eventually become your, who you are. Yes. I, there, there is, there's more to it than what I just said, but it's basically like your, <laughs> your everything. I don't know. I'm not able to think of it at the moment, but it's like, it's so interesting how our, you know, we have these presuppositions and we have these thoughts and the thoughts create these feelings and the feelings, then we make the decisions based off of our feelings. And we justify logically. That's how the brain works yes. is we make decisions emotionally and justify logically. Yes. And then from those, decisions, uh, we take action. And then from those actions, we get results and that becomes who you are in life. Well, if you're, if we take this all the way back and you start, you're starting off from the place of I'm not good enough. Um, I don't love who I am. Then everything else is tainted. That whole thought process all along that path is tainted yes. and people don't even recognize it. It's like, we are so um, out of touch with our thought process that we don't even realize. And so a lot of people do this thing where they have like repeating patterns. Like if you've ever said to yourself, how did I get here again? It's like, I was losing weight and I was almost in shape. And then I self-sabotage. Yep. It's like, if people have like this thermostat, they don't get too high, they don't get too low. So my whole aim is to, you know, get to the subconscious belief system and then so and then reprogram those sort of like reframe them so that uh the thermostat gets set a little higher yes most right. people are, make the same amount of money every single year they're set mm -hmm. that their thermostat is set to a certain temperature of, of income most people continue to, if they're single they're dating relatively the same type of why do i keep attracting that woman how do i keep attracting that guy like you see that over and over and they can't put their finger on what is it about themselves that is attracting that experience into their life. So I love that idea of, of breaking the mold so that people can actually consciously intentionally choose what, what they actually want. Yeah. Like if, if I were to just shortcut this whole uh, description of the classes, we're rewiring your brain. Like yes. we're taking, and, and so once, once we have the, um, and we do talk about the power of beliefs. You know, my favorite example is that Roger Bannister, you know, example, yes. you, you may have heard it where nobody has, had broken the four minute mile. And then they said your human body couldn't possibly do it. And then he did it. And then since then, like thousands of people have done it. Yes. And it was like this power of belief, you know, placebos work the same way. You, they give the control group, the medication and then the 
I think that's how it works. So then other people get the sugar pill and the sugar pill is like 70% as effective as the actual medication. Mm -hmm. It's because of it's the power of belief. Yes. And that's sort of interesting because it kind of explains a lot of religion. Like religion is all about beliefs, you know, that are instilled in childhood. And so it's just interesting, like the things that people do from this place of belief, right? And most people don't even realize or take the time to question their beliefs. So, but that's what we do in this class is, is we talk about how powerful they are. We talk about some law of attraction stuff. We talk about your perfect day. Like, where is it that you want to go? Get your mind focused. Um, I have other little homework tools they can do like uh, vision boards and things like that to have something in your line of sight because your subconscious mind will align to what it sees um, regularly. Mm. Um, and so um, then we talk about a self-care process. And so I have this worksheet that I'm happy to share it with you if you want it for your listeners, but it's this worksheet of your um, feel the feelings as if it's already happened is mm. the essence of the exercise. So once you decide what feelings do you really want to feel like my favorite feelings are inspired and engaged and that like energizes me. Um, everything all, for me always boils down to peace and joy. Those are like sort of my drivers, but we get mm -hmm. under the hood and we talk about what is your why what's driving you, you know, what do you want and why do you want it? And what are the feelings that you want to feel? And so the daily self care exercise is getting in touch with those thoughts and feelings every single day right? Because as you um, get accustomed, because those, those are, that's what's establishing beliefs, right? Is getting accustomed to feeling those feelings as if it's already happened. That's sort of invoking the laws of attraction. Mm -hmm. And then, um, then we do this process of identifying your limiting beliefs. And one of the exercises that I like to do is why don't you have what you want? Why? Why don't you have what you want? And typically mm -hmm. what people will list is a, is a, a list of excuses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like something outside of them is preventing them from having what they want. Or even worse, it's like I self-sabotage myself. But the people who say that I self-sabotage myself are the people who don't even realize it, that those are the people I have the most hope for because they're the ones who are taking responsibility. Yes. And taking responsibility is all about, it's, that's what empowerment is all about. But we do, I do, um, you know, those people who are in sort of the other camp, which is sort of really the victim mentality, yep. um, there is a process to break those victim mindsets, right? Mm -hmm. And so identifying why you don't have what you want is sort of the, the beginning. And then when we, when we can get to reframing those, those are like your a lot of those ideas are rooted in beliefs. And so once we can get to what is the belief, then we can start to reframe the negative belief. Yes. How do you, how do you break the victim mindset? Well, it all comes back to, um, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's easier to do like with a, a concrete example. Let me see if I can think of one. Like I, okay, here I have one for my own personal life. It's like, I used to be so sad because all I really wanted was when I grew up, I thought two things were going to save me. I thought it was love and money. <laughs> um, turns out uh, it was love that saved me, but it showed up very differently than I, than I thought. It, I thought it was, I was totally into the, the Prince Charming thing. That's another story. But um I had this core belief that I wasn't good enough. 
And I thought love was going to save me. So what did I do? I chose men that were emotionally unavailable. I think I alluded to that previously with the married policeman. Yes. Um, yes. Um, Author, author, authoritarian figure that was unavailable. So that was, that says a lot about me. <laughs> um, however, uh, and I was in this place where I was like, oh, nobody loves me. I just can't seem to find the right guy. But I didn't realize that I was choosing people who were unavailable. Mm-hmm. I thought I was a victim, but I was choosing people who were unavailable. I also um, was very attracted to very ambitious men that who also didn't have any time for me. Right. And so it was interesting. I, it wasn't until I did what they called an inventory process and the 12th that I began to see repeating patterns. And so when we do this exercise of why don't you have what you want? It's like, when did you try to get it? Like what were this, who was involved? It's very, it's a writing exercise and there's something about writing it out, not yeah. typing it. Typing it is too, I don't know, it's too disassociated for me. It's not. You know what I think it is just as a real side caveat for a second? Mm-hmm. Because I think it is literally you, like you just said, like when you're writing it, it literally is your, your signature, your handprint, your, it is, unlo- it is as unique to you as your fingerprint. And I think there's something about that mind body connection of, of putting something that now exists in the world outside of you. I can hold it up and point to it. And if I was hit by a bus the next day, like it still exists and it's me as opposed to a computer printout that anybody could go forge. It's uh, that to me is there's something to that. Uh, my curious mind. Goes, Absolutely. I think there's, I have, I have a friend who used to say that you have a BS filter in your elbow when you write the truth comes out. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of like a funny, that. a funny little antidote, yeah. but there is something that comes out subconsciously because a lot of times we're not aware like NLP, the neuro linguistic programming is really all about the words that you use because the words are tied in, in your mind to the different neurons that are tied to feelings. Mm-hmm. And so we don't realize sometimes the words that we're using. And then when you write, when you, when you write it all out, there's something. And the other thing I learned uh, recently, um, I was listening to um, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who is the uh, neuroscientist at Stanford. He does a lot of research on behavior change and um, he's trying to help blind people see. But I thought what was really interesting about something he said was that your eyes are the only, um, he called it brain matter that are, their nerve, brain matter nerves that are outside of your brain. And I never thought about that before, but it's like, once you see, it's like you're writing it and you see it. And there's something about, um, going from left to right. There's a lot of studies and that's what EMDR is, mm. eye movement desensitization reprogramming. It's about the eye movement. And so there's something about that that like rewires things in your brain. So the writing process is actually fascinating to me on many levels, but it's a way of getting everything out of your mind onto paper. And there's a lot of subconscious beliefs that leak out when you're, when you're writing. Well, like you said, our, our brains have to go on autopilot and that there's actual patterns. Um, you talked about as a child, you have an experience, you come up with uh, the meaning of that experience and, um, and that there's a pattern there. The brain is looking for efficiency. Mm-hmm. And so there is actual neuronic connections that create that efficiency. And if they were... Um, inconsistent with a deeper truth, 
your brain is optimized to a, to a story. It's not optimized to a, what I would yeah. call a spiritual truth about who we are. It's optimized to a, to a false interpretation of whatever the child thought in that moment, which, you know, as children, how we don't have the, the maturity to be able to, to be able to see our beliefs and our, uh, you know, limiting mind and, and all that. Um, the, the neuronic stuff that's going on right now is fascinating to me. It sounds like you've got, you know, I'm obsessed. Yeah. It's, yeah. You have to check out Dr. Andrew Huberman. He explains the whole, and here's the other thing. Here's another big thing that we have to overcome in addiction is this idea of boredom or that I'm never going to have any fun again, or, you know, um, what happens, especially in early recovery is that that's what people experience. They think they're never going to have any fun again, but, um, what's actually happening is your, your brain mother nature was just so wise. There's all these generic, um, algorithms, um, mechanisms in your body that can help you adjust to adapt to any environment. Um, and what I mean by that is like when you feel the need for hunger, you experience agitation in your body and then you have this urge. It's like that urgency and focus that then you go eat something and satisfies that and you sort of get this dopamine rush. Right. And so that, that starts to wire your subconscious mind, your hippocampus to say, this is an activity that will bring you dopamine. And so it's action first, dopamine second. Mm -hmm. um, but what happens in addiction is that we start to actually wire our brain to focus only on the activity that brings the dopamine. And so someone who's actually addicted to alcohol or opiates, you know, their, their brain is being flooded with dopamine and, um, your, your body is very wise. It knows it, it's being, your receptors are being flooded with dopamine. So what does it do? It retracts the receptors from the cell of the membrane. And so you're not absorbing as much dopamine. It's, it's, it's seeking homeostasis, right? Mm. And so when people stop drinking or they stop using, there's this feeling that I'm bored. But what that actually is, is your mind is healing because uh, you don't have as many receptors um, on the outside of your cell membrane. So they're not taking in that dopamine. Mm. So it's it, literally your brain healing is your brain reestablishing those receptors so that you can actually ingest dopamine and have that experience of joy or happiness, right? And when you're in an, an addictive um, cycle, it's like this vicious cycle that you get locked in, um, your brain will start to narrow in on the one thing that brings you the most dopamine. So people that used to love to play, I see you have a guitar behind you, people who used to love to play musical instruments or have hobbies or people lose interest in their spouse. They lose interest in their job. They lose interest in their children. Mm -hmm. They lose interest in all the things that used to bring them joy and, and the alcohol and drugs get put before everything else, right? And so early recovery is about, um, you know, it, it takes a minute. It's like you have to be aware of these mechanisms because it takes your brain a little while to heal. They say it can take up to a year to heal. So you need to give yourself some grace and know that in the beginning, you're not going to be feeling a lot of joy. Actually, you're going to be feeling a lot of everything, like everything that you were suppressing. <laughs> Um, suddenly you, you feel all, all of that 
too. So that's, that's why it's so important to have support. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of studies around the science of um, joy in recovery. Like people learn to like go to meetings and develop community. It's like a support system to get them through that rough period. They begin mm -hmm. to learn to be vulnerable and open and when you share, you get the outward validation and support and love. Like, oh, you did a good thing by being honest, right? And so then you get the dopamine hit. And mm -hmm. so you start to, your behavior patterns begin to change because you're being rewarded for things that are good self-care, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why a lot of these, that's why it's so important to have like a support community and things like that. And that's definitely something we recreate in the uh, self-esteem you know, workshop, you know, mm -hmm. these, they tend to be small workshops where people are sharing some very intimate things and they get this um, community reward. And, and so the whole thing starts to, so we're really, we're actually, it's all about, it's all about brain chemistry. We're, we're learning how to self-care and create a support system around us so that we can do the behavior change of stopping the drinking. Right. That's fascinating. You mentioned a little bit earlier about um, identifying and discovering purpose. Um, can you give some, give some, maybe an exercise or some other wisdom around helping somebody find their purpose? I find that that question alone is, is hard for a lot of people. I mean, I, I went through that uh, period and I wasn't <laughs> dealing with the added uh, stress and complications of an addiction or something like that. I would imagine somebody who's in that state it might be even more difficult to, or maybe it's easier. I don't know. Maybe it helps them break through quicker, but can you give us some wisdom on, on how to discover purpose? Well, I think it's so important to, and I think I went off on a tangent when you asked me that last question about how to identify and change a limiting belief. We were talking about victim mentalities and stuff, yes. but the number one, the number one exercise to rebuilding self-esteem and start, start to find that purpose is service. Right. So, but it's, there needs to be this balance between uh, self-care and service, right? So you put the oxygen, like they say on the airplane, you have to put that oxygen mask on yourself first, and then you can care for others. And so um, part of rebuilding self-esteem is that you first do some self-care stuff. And I have a couple of books that I love recommending. Um, Tara Brock is one of my favorite teachers. Um, she wrote two books, Radical Acceptance and radical compassion. And within those two, I like, I'm such a junkie for audiobooks and the audiobooks contain meditative practices. And one of my favorites mm. is the rain meditation. And also I'll tie this back to how to find your purpose, but um, it's so important to learn to acknowledge and address negative feelings that you have about yourself or others and resolve them. And she has this meditation called RAIN and RAIN stands for recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, it's like, okay, we do this as you move through life, people make mistakes. And so instead of feeling bad or suppressing it, it's like, let's deal with it. You kind of lean in and resolve it because what you resist persists, right? So instead of, and this, and what I'm really talking about is resolving guilt and shame. 
So you go through life, you resolve this guilt and shame. And then when you can be in touch, because you, we need to be in touch with ourselves, but if all you feel is pain, then you're not going to want to be in touch with yourself. And when I, when I mean in touch with yourself, just like the physical manifestation of feelings in your body, right? Like when, when, when you have an exchange with someone and you're like, oh, I should have said this, or I should have said that. It's like, it almost like it gets caught in your throat. Like you have this, or like you get that you walk away from an exchange with someone, you have like this pit in your stomach. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what do we do with that? Do we just ignore it? Do we just pretend like it's going to go away? I think the one thing that I would want people to hear, if nothing else, is that time does not heal all wounds. That is a lie. Mm. Time does not heal all wounds. Maybe you might get good at disassociating, but that's not the same thing. <laughs> right. The pain waits. And, and a lot of times people hold pain mm. in their body, right? There's a book um, that I would love to remember at this exact moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's uh, The Body Keeps Score. Yes. The Body Keeps the Score. And so what I'm suggesting is that we, this RAIN process is a way to resolve those negative feelings. Because otherwise, what ends up happening is that you, we, in, in 12-step community, we call it, you catch a resentment, you know, and it's like, it's like holding a little pebble and you put it in your, in a bag and you throw the bag over your back. And pretty soon you have so many you know, you get strong, you get accustomed to carrying all these resentments. A lot of people are really angry and they don't even know why. It's because you have a bag, of, a huge bag of rocks on your back. That's why right. it's literally crushed. It's like you're getting crushed. And anger, as it turns out, is um, a sign of an unmet need. I thought that was brilliant. I got that from Tara Brock as well. Mm. But so anyway, uh, what I'm suggesting is that we have a process to acknowledge and resolve uh, the negativity that comes up, right? It's, a lot of it is forgiveness, self-forgiveness, forgiveness of others. It's about personal responsibility. And then you can be more in touch with yourself. So as things like joy come up, like you ask, you ask 10 people, uh, what do you do for fun? A lot of people, especially like the workaholic, they're like, what, is, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is this fun thing you speak of? Yeah. Um, most people don't know what like healthy ways of having fun. Like if you take away drugs and alcohol, it's like, well, what's fun anymore? Most people don't know. And so, uh, <laughs> right. And yeah, so, totally. I've, I've asked several people like, what do you want out of life? What, what do you, yeah. what's your dream? And there, I, I'm surprised at the number of people that a don't even know clearly what it is, but even be like, I never even stopped to ask myself that question, which, you know, no judgment there, but like they might, they've they've just been so focused on survival or, you know, or running subconsciously, you know, they're they're trying to meet subconscious needs and they don't even know they're, they're on autopilot. Yeah. A lot of people are like really focused on um, validation through achievement. Yes. Like achievement. People think that that brings joy, Yep. but achievement can be this, lofty goal that you never reach right so what are you gonna what what are you gonna do to experience joy today especially when when achievement means uh love and approval from mom or dad that's that's still maybe lost in their own you know mental turmoil and and so somebody goes out and they're now they're a lawyer and they're making you know healthy six figures and they're doing this and this and this and they're like man why am i not happy i i must it must mean that i need to do more like so more double down and yeah they don't realize that they're chasing some kind of approval from mom or dad that is never going to come from that we put all these blocks between us and feeling good Mm -hmm. 
if, if only I could find him, then I would be happy. Right. If only I could have this number in my bank account, then I would be happy. If only I could, the scale would say this certain number, then I would be happy. What people don't realize is they get to all those things and they're still not happy. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's, it has nothing to do with any of those things outside of us. It's all about, you know, and, and this is why it's to me, self-esteem is so important. It's because we need to connect with ourselves to figure out what it is that makes us happy. And this is all trial and error stuff, but it, you have to pay attention. You have to try new things and you have to pay attention. It's like experimenting. It's like, I ask these people, okay, especially the people that are early in recovery. It's like, okay, I'm going to ask you to do the self-care process. And then I'm going to ask you to try new things. You know, it's like make a, make a date to go hiking with a friend, go on a bike ride, do a spin class, go outside, do an artistic thing, um, go to a football game or when you could do that. But you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's like you have to start experimenting and then pay attention. You have to pay attention to how you feel in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, prayer meditation and like it is huge. Like I start everybody off with a morning practice. It's like writing, journaling. I love the five minute journal. The five minute journal has three things you're grateful for, three things that would make today great, a positive affirmation. It always starts with like a little quote. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, it's like, mm -hmm. what are three th amazing things that happened that day? And what could you have done better? Right. And it's a great, I have, I think three books sitting behind me that are filled mm. and I will go back and, and identify, well, what was it that brought me joy this month? What were the things that brought me the most joy? But in my mind, I'm training my brain to start paying attention. Yes. Yeah. So that's what a gratitude list is for. And that's like, what, what are three things? That, it's like, I'm training my brain to notice when I feel good. And even in the midst of like over the last 26 years, I've had my fair share of tragedies and loss. Um, I've had friends die and, and I, and I watch people process grief. There's, there's a lot of that. And even in despair and grief and periods of, there are moments, there are moments of joy and beauty and appreciation and gratitude. There are moments we, the brain likes to be like, I'm in grief. Well, you can't spend every waking moment in that grief, maybe for a period of time, maybe that's, that's situational depression, which is valid. I'm not talking about that. I'm yeah. talking about there, you and I are going to go through our day today and we're going to experience moments of peace and joy and happy. But if we're not looking for it, we won't notice it. So that's why I'm asking people, what does your perfect day look like? What are the feelings that you want to feel? What would that, you know, act as if it's already do your prayer and meditation in the morning. And by prayer, you know, I don't mean a religious thing. It's like surrender to the universe, um, be open to new experiences. What is your intention for the day? Like set yes. the intention for the day. Mm -hmm. um, these are all, these are all practices, very practical and they're free you know, that you can do to start changing the way you feel today. Yes. Today. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> when you help people get clear on what it is that they want, you start to, you know, reinvent their brain, if you will, and, re mm -hmm. and realign them to what they want. And they start moving in that direction. What are, what are some of the next steps that you help them uncover? So they're, they're going to what they want. They're identifying what their limiting beliefs are. Um, what are some of the other components to, achieve peace and joy? 
So um, one of the next things I think it's super important is boundary setting. Mm -hmm. And so we go through the whole, this whole class of what is a boundary, you know, how does it, uh, because most of life is spent in relationship to other people, right? And, you know, we're learning new, uh, we're, we're developing a new relationship with ourselves, right? So for me, who somebody is, tends to be on the workaholic side, it's like, I have to have certain boundaries with myself. I, I focus on self-care, right? Like self-care is, I start the day with self-care, um, but I also am aware that I have limitations and boundaries are a funny thing because sometimes you don't know where they are until you cross them. Right. And in this, in this sort of lifestyle that I have of constantly evolving, that means my boundaries are evolving as well. Mm -hmm. But um, so boundary setting is really important, especially when someone is first developing a healthy sense of self-esteem, because we're actually teaching other people how to treat us. Right. You have to be, but it all starts with being aware of what it is that you're feeling. Right. And so that's why the self-care thing is so important in the morning. Um, yeah. And obviously if you're dealing with addictions, you're talking about boundaries for yourself. Like you mentioned earlier in the call, how you hated yourself. Like mm. you would subvert your own values to meet a, to a momentary high of addiction or relationship or whatever. And, and then you wake up and you're all, oh, what the fuck am I doing? Like, this is, yeah. Yeah, I, I've been in those places before and not knowing in those moments that, oh, I crossed one of my own boundaries. Like, what, right. what is that, what is that self-care boundary that I didn't uphold that I, I allowed myself to get in this situation or did this thing or, or what have you? So. Yeah. So, um, maintaining emotional, uh, there's like emotional sobriety too, right? You don't get too angry, too lonely. There's this idea of halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So, um, <laughs> When you, when you're feeling out of balance, it's like halt. It's like, I need, wait a minute. I need to hold up. I need to do some self-care. You know, it's like, do I need, am I hungry? Like people, we joke around now about being hangry. That's kind of why I just laughed. Cause yesterday I was, uh, I took my kids out to brunch and, and they hadn't had anything all morning and we were driving somewhere and they're like, dad, where are we going? I'm like, guys, I don't know exactly yet. I know in the area that we're going to go, but I don't know exactly where we're going to go. Well, I'm starving. I had that. And they were both, what was it that my daughter started getting <laughs> upset at? It was so, you know, remedial, whatever it was, but yeah, they were so hangry. It was funny. They're super, how old are your kids? Uh, right now they're 14 and 12. 14 and 12. Yeah. yeah I used to keep an emergency cliff bar in my purse for my husband. Uh, yes. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Snacks for the kids. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a thing. I mean, your, it your is. blood sugars drop and yeah, nobody's, yeah. Hangry is a thing. So hungry. <laughs> angry is another one. Angry is a sign of an unmet need. Right. And that, I think that can be addressed with the rain meditation, like in your morning self-care practice, really just checking in with yourself to see if there's something that you, that needs to be resolved. Right. Well, like, and in the, in the Tony Robbins world, um, the unmet needs specifically that he talks about, anyway is significance um a lot of times that you fi you find people if they're angry it's because for some reason they feel disrespected uh they feel insignificant like that particular emotional need is not being met um are you familiar with the the crazy eight psychological pattern Sounds familiar but hit, hit me hit me yeah so it. he talks about how when people are under stress um a lot of times people will either tend towards either anger or they'll go to uh, sadness. And it's, oh, some, yeah. 
some very uh it's like your 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 two uh pseudo identities yeah, right, right. um and and he talks about how uh people who go to anger first tend to have father issues because oftentimes uh, i'm sorry I, I might be misspeaking but they i don't know that sounds right to me i know it, it sounded good i was gonna go with it but i was like let me be let me be transparent here uh, i'm not 100 percent sure on this but people who go to anger first uh is because they do feel a sense of unmet significance which wow. which i have interpreted as more often from dad um okay. whereas uh people who tend to lean towards sadness first it's because they have an unmet need of love and connection which i tend to point to mom on that but i don't know if those are mm. if, if that's accurate or not either way it's interesting to see which way people go first yeah. and what happens typically is someone who goes angry first will go they might start off with frustration and then get pissed off and then get angry and then go to rage but then at some point if nothing happens that energy dissipates and then they get really lonely and sad and depressed. And, the, and that's why they call this the crazy eight. And people who tend to go to the, to the other side first will get sad and lonely. But then after a while, they get frustrated and pissed off. Like, how come nobody's calling me? I'm, what, and then they get angry. And so they get locked into this crazy eight pattern. Um, but yes. Yeah, yeah I, I, as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, I could totally see. I, I could absolutely apply that to my own life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't do, I don't do a lot. I always thought, I always thought of anger as a secondary emotion. Like I always thought sadness came first, like something has to trigger, maybe the sadness is, is the insignificance. And that was, that's always been something that, um, I identified mm -hmm. with in the Tony Robbins world as like, Oh, I have this need for significance because mm -hmm. I felt so insignificant in my childhood Yes, for a variety of reasons. But, um, I had a dad, God bless him. Um, he would, uh, he would, um, out intellectualize me all the time. Uh, yeah. My brother lived with him the longest. I have my parents, my parents divorced. I don't know if I mentioned that part. That was also did a number on my self-esteem, but, um, yeah, my brother lived with him the longest and my brother became an attorney. <laughs> because he there learned to debate. Like my dad was always playing devil's advocate. So I never felt validated right? Mm. So I never felt significant. It's fun. It's amazing to me because obviously as a parent now, it's like, do we inadvertently do these things? Like, yeah, he, absolutely. My guess is he was probably, I mean, I don't know. I could be totally wrong, but is it possible that he was trying to help and like always, absolutely. Hey, I, I have more experience than you. Of course I'm smarter than you. Let me, let me help you. Let me give you more wisdom. And in his head, he might be doing something intentionally loving when yeah. really the interpretation of it was, ugh. I, I'm never right about anything. I'm never significant. I can never. Yeah. <laughs> There's a yeah. I think my, my father had his own fair share of feelings of insignificance and, but you know, he was a military guy, mm. you know, he was a Marine, right? He's, I grew this is why I'm obsessively early is because there's, there's no early. You're either on time or you're late <laughs> type of thing. But he always played devil's advocate. I think he did was always trying to, um, have me, it was a critical thinking exercise. Right. And so it did, it did have its benefits, but it, there really wasn't that, um, there really wasn't that validation that I needed as well, I think. Mm. And, you know, I, in, in all fairness to all the parents out there, nobody escapes childhood without some issues. Exactly. 
right? We're just all human. And, and the things that, that challenged me the most turned out to be my superpower, right? It's like alcoholism, addiction, and child neglect, and abuse, all that stuff. Those are my superpowers now. Now I'm uniquely qualified. Like I, I can see things that other people can't see now that I'm on the other side of, mm-hmm. you know, overcoming some of these issues. I can, I can, I can see things other people can't, and I can kind of connect the dots for people where, you know, that's why like a doctor's, you know, it's like, God bless them. They don't hardly, I'm being interviewed by a doctor pretty soon. I was like, I don't know if you want to interview me. I kind of have a beef against the medical community. They get like zero training when it comes to drugs and alcohol mm. stuff. And, and the stories that I've heard over the last 26 years about people and their experiences with doctors in active addiction would just, it just blows my mind. They just yeah. don't have a lot of training about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, um, going back to the parent thing for half a second. To me, that's part of the self-care is to know that as a parent, you're not going to be perfect. And mm-hmm. there's no way because you, you're trying to fit into a child's perception of you, which often is mom and dad is perfect. But, uh, you know, if they yell at me or if they don't yell at me or then they don't care. Like there's always going to be some level of interpretation that you're not going to meet. And part of that self-care as a parent is to uh, give yourself some margin, you know, of, of. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I work with a lot of women. So we talk about motherhood guilt a lot, Mm -hmm. but parenting guilt, people have parenting guilt a lot. And I think my mom did for sure. Did she? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's parenting is hard, right? First, we have to teach our children to be safe, right? We have to teach our children to function in the world. And so we put all these parameters around them. And then adulthood is largely undoing all that, (laughs) right? And so first, you got to be safe. You got to survive in the world. But then let's let's uh, start doing some reprogramming so that we're not using survival mechanisms as a form of functioning in the world. Yes. It seems like uh, as a human species, though, at least on some levels, I, I know there's probably a lot we can critique on where we are as a society right now, <laughs> but um, it does seem on some level that we are progressing incrementally in, in that, the, the fact that we're having this conversation right now, the fact, like, like you said, your mom and dad, they didn't have the coping skills. Mm-hmm. You know, I do feel like we're more aware of these things now in our Uber connected, oh, yeah. you know, which I think is a good thing overall. And maybe we need to societally, uh, rewire some things so that we can move forward. Yeah, I think we're actually, I agree with you that we are progressing. And I know it's easy to be tempted to feel like society is falling apart, but it's not really true. That's just fear. That is, those are, it's like, there's all this fear mongering going on. And I think the, I'll I'll blame the media. I don't have a problem blaming the media for a lot of this, but it's also human. The media is just a reflection of the human mind and the human mind is uh, trained and designed to focus on problems so that we can solve them and prevent, um, you know, catastrophe, mm-hmm. you know, but there, we can go too far with focusing on negativity too much. And what I would, what I would propose to you and anyone listening is that there are a thousand things that go right every day, mm-hmm. that we are more alike than we are different. It's like mm-hmm. there, we, nobody talks about the legions legions of people who are doing the right thing every day, every day, legions of people who are doing the right thing every day, right? Yeah, everybody is human. We make mistakes. It's so easy to think that, oh, this group is the problem. That group is the problem. 
but one of the, my favorite quotes I got from Tara Brock is there's a saying that, that, that the country is divided into two groups, those who think they are right. And that's the end of the saying, because everybody thinks they're right. <laughs> right. That's a, yes, that's a good saying. So it's like, so it goes back to this idea of confirmation bias, you know, and that's, that's a part of self-esteem building too. It's like, it's like I have these beliefs that I got in childhood and then I look for information to support my beliefs. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what yep. happens. Yes. And that happens in politics. It happens everywhere. Yes. The part of the, of the Lord's prayer that I love the most is lead us not into temptation. Mm-hmm. The temptation is to believe the fear. Fear mm-hmm. stands for false evidence appearing real, or it could mean face everything and recover, or there's other mm-hmm. positive things, but Fear is such a corrosive thread, right? And so I'm sort of like, F the fear, I am not doing it. I am going to stay focused on what I do want. And what I believe about human nature is that we are essentially loving and we're essentially good people. People typically, and when we go back to talking about doing things that we did that were out of alignment with our values, yes. we did those things because we're, we're here. There was some sort of fear. I'm not going to get what I want. I'm going to lose something that I have. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of the two compulsions behind fear. And then we, mm-hmm. and then we take actions based from that place. But if you come from a, a, an abundance mindset where there is enough for everybody, there's this idea, what is the greatest good of all involved? Like if we can come from that place instead of fear, things turn out very differently. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Yes, there's a lot of terrible things going on in the country. Um, we're coming up on an election year, so it's easy. The temptation is to make that blanket statement, we're fucked. Yep. Can we swear? I think I heard you swear. Yep. <laughs> that's not true. It's not true. Every single day, even I live in a community that's divided politically, but I look out my window, everyone's going to work. They take care of their houses. They're taking care of their kids. They're walking their dogs. They're... From day to day, we are all doing the best that we can. And when I take an action that's outside of alignment of my value system, it's because I'm afraid. Should I be judged for my fears? No, of course not. You know, not in a loving, helping, like, and and that's one of those idea shifts in my mind that helps me to resolve the guilt that I collect throughout the day is, you know what, I'm doing the best that I can. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm only, and, and it's like, I love the people in my life, despite the mistakes they're making as well. You know, we actually, we actually need each other. And like the recovery community, we call this trauma bonding. You know, these are, these are people who are like on the brink of death, you know, and it's like, we hang on to each other, like, you know, for survival, you know, but also people that are, um, you know, reaching for optimum performance, you know, people like in the jujitsu community, both my husband and son do jujitsu. It's like, they're in this community where they support each other and they help each other to get stronger. And Mm -hmm. it's a a community is just so important. I think that's one of the key things about any kind of behavior change is that you change your environment to support you communities and service. We were talking about finding purpose service Mm -hmm is the fastest way to build self-esteem because when you Mm. give to somebody else you begin to realize how much that you that you have to give Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um even if you're just talking to somebody 
you begin to realize that all the answers are within you. Sometimes you'll find yourself saying the exact thing you yourself needed to hear, mm -hmm. right? It's like the mm -hmm. answers are within us. And there's this law of reciprocity that we become, you know, bonded together. And, you know, I don't know, there's this religious idea that tithing, it's like whatever you give comes back to you tenfold. It's karma. It's, you know, that's so anyway, being of service, I think is the fastest way to, you know, rebuild your self-esteem and it helps you, it leads you, it gives you little breadcrumbs on the way to finding your purpose as well. Yeah. Yep. I love that. Um, I wanted to make sure that we covered the, the full facet of your program. Um, was there anything that we missed there or anything that you'd like to add? Well, um, so after the boundary setting, we do give um, the next class is like, I do give some assignments during the boundary setting. It's like ideas like, um, I'll just give you one little tip for the boundary setting. So it's speak your truth without blame or judgment. Right. And so when you, whenever there's like a, um, some tension with somebody, it's like, it's good to write it out what it is that you want to say to them but it has to be free of blame or judgment. So it's typically I statements like I felt really uncomfortable in our last exchange. I want to own my part. I felt mm -hmm. that, you know, it's important to get to your part and own it and then, you know, not point fingers. You know, there is something that when you own your stuff with somebody that it takes the wind out of their sails and they're able to see their part because most people feel so guilty. It's hidden. Your guilt is hidden with anger and mm -hmm. all that stuff. So setting boundaries and we can do those exercises in class. Cause sometimes it's hard. It's like, I want to tell my husband he was an asshole for not doing the dishes and he left him for me and I got angry and I said some stuff to him and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What did you do? It's like, you said, some, how did you say it? What did you say? So let's deconstruct your part. And then you can go to that person and set boundaries with them, ask for what you need, state of hardship. You know, what was it about that experience that was hard? Ask for what you need in a way that's not offensive mm. um, or repellent, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So learning, you know, so we do some practicing of that. And then we do, you know, I have them do an assessment in the beginning of the class, like rate yourself from one to 10 on things like, um, I'm clear about what it is I want out of my life. I'm happy with my relationships, finances, health. And then, so we do that in the beginning. So the very last class, we start to, after six weeks of practicing all this stuff, this is just a, a launching point, really. Um, you know, we take the assessment again, we celebrate the wins. Every class I begin with, what are some of the wins that you experienced this week? So it gets their mind focused off of what went wrong to what went right. Mm -hmm. Right. So we start celebrating some of the wins. And then um, the ongoing process, it's a new membership site that it's not quite done yet, but it's called the Brainwashers Club. <laughs> and, the, and the brainwashers club came out of this, came out of it's positive brainwashing. It's honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, what we're doing is we're washing away all the negativity, right? We're washing away the negativity so that we can, can receive the good stuff. Cause uh, it's guilt and shame that is the blocks to receiving really. Mm. So um, the idea is that self-esteem is sort of like this ongoing process, right? Like you wouldn't water a plant once and expect it to stay alive forever, right? It's an ongoing, it's a nurturing thing. So the Brainwashers Club will be a membership site. It'll be like 20 bucks a month. And, but it will have like all kinds, it'll have community. It'll have an opportunity for service, right? To the things that are so important to maintaining positive self-esteem. It'll all be people who understand sort of this brain brainwashing club 
methodology. So we're all be helping each other out along the path. There'll be all kinds of resources and experts that come in to talk about different facets of, you know, self-care, whether it's finance, romance, or nutrition, <laughs> you know, to sort of nurture that ongoing self-esteem stuff. Got it. I love that. Um, you did Can say I tell you a story of why I called it the Brainwashers Club? Of course. Oh my God, it was so funny. So early in my recovery, I was dating this guy who will rename, we'll call him pre-Bob. My husband's name was Bob. <laughs> well, there's a lot of pre-Bobs. That, that's a, yes, there know. were. I had to kiss a lot of frogs. That's another story. But um, I, was, I was finally, I finally got sober and I was in this community. My life was starting to change and I was dating this, uh, this guy pre-Bob. And um, I was recognizing that pre-Bob was probably drinking a little too much that for my comfort level. Um, I think there were some steroids involved. I was thinking that was probably a bad idea. And, um, and I was distancing myself. And he, and he was like, you know what? I think those people are brainwashing you. And he meant it in a bad way. And I was like, yeah, they totally are. Uh. I was like, yeah, because that's when my whole life started to turn around is when I was doing like this positive brainwashing. So that's the uh, story behind the name of the Brainwashers Club. Is yeah, I guess it's a, it's a matter of perspective, right? It depends on where your brain has been. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to save people. I think uh, my intention's probably pretty clear. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, I did want to ask you a question though, and it's, this mm -hmm. is a, that was a nice uh, prelude. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the call that love saved you. It I'm did. assuming that had to do with Bob a little bit, um, or is this a religious thing or a spiritual? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, you know, when I first found recovery, there is this concept that the women work with the women, and I was terrified. I was terrified to work with the women. You know, do step work with women is what they were talking about. Why were you terrified? Because I did not have a great relationship with um, my mom. Mm. Um, I was not living up to the values that she felt that she had instilled in me and she would regularly kind of disown me. We, there was never any, um, like I grew up in a house where you never said you were sorry. You could just say you never said that, which would make me crazy. And anyway, very dysfunctional. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, very <laughs> dysfunctional. Uh, we didn't say things like I love you or... And I remember when I first got into recovery, the first time I told my mom, my mother that I loved her, she goes, oh, well, thank you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Have a nice day. You're welcome. What is that? I am your know. daughter. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. You know, things are very different now. My mom and I are super tight. And I know she loves me. She tells me she's proud of me all the time, which is amazing. That's great. Yeah. We all evolve. Hopefully. Um, I forgot what your question was. Uh, uh, you were saved by love. I was saved by love. So um, I was terrified to work with the women. Um, I needed a, what they call a sponsor, someone who takes you through the 12 steps. And it's just somebody who assigns you. There's actually, the 12 steps are a homework process, basically a writing exercise, largely a writing exercise. And um, I was so desperate to, I was so afraid I was going to drink again that I was like, okay, I'll, I'll work the steps and find a, a female sponsor. 
and I was terrified. And mostly because most of my validation came from the outside. Like I spent a lot of time and energy decorating the outside. I didn't spend any time like developing anything on the inside. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that I had anything to offer another woman. I didn't know how to be a good girlfriend. I had drinking buddies. Like I would, I had this, a couple of drinking buddies, like you don't want to show up at the bar by yourself. Right. So I had a couple of drinking buddies and we'd go out and tear up the town, that kind of thing. My wingman, so to speak. Um, but, uh, women were largely competition, right? Like, cause I sought through, I sought my self-esteem through or validation through, through men mostly. And so women were just competition. So when all that was off the table, and I needed to get sober. And they said, you had to work with a woman. It was a terrifying experience. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, I found a woman who remembered my name the second time she met me. And yeah. I was like, I kept hearing about this four step. And I was like, oh my God, would you listen to my four step? And Peter, she looked me in my eye and she goes, I would be honored. And I was like, floored. I was like, what? And she's like, but we're going to start with step one. <laughs> mm. But she, and she met me, she met me every week she met me, she would give me an assignment. She's like, when you're done, let's set up a time and we'll meet and you can share your writings with me. And I was so surprised that she showed up every single time. That was an act of love. Right. Mm. And I would tell her these things that I felt so ashamed about. I felt so guilty about, and she met my guilt and shame with love and compassion. Mm. And Dr. Brene Brown um, is a shame researcher and she talks about how empathy is the antidote to shame. And that was definitely my experience. Mm. This woman that I met early in recovery, um, she got my kind of crazy <laughs> and she never once judged me and she helped me find a new normal. Um, and she helped me to develop some self-care practices and she taught me to, you know, you have to give it away to keep it type of thing. But, um, she loved me. Mm. She loved me until I could love myself. She was like, you, you deserve better than, you know, the guy that was the drinking and the steroids and the, he was a nice guy, but she was like, you deserve better. And I was like, what? No, I don't. <laughs> No, I don't. Mm -hmm. She was like, yes, you do. But she never really, I don't actually remember her using those words. And I, to this day, people come to me with broken relationships and I never tell them that they should leave. Never, never, never. My work is always to build somebody's self-esteem and either that relationship evolves and grows mm -hmm. to match or it naturally falls away. Yes. It becomes so painful that they're like, I can't do this anymore because I deserve better. Yes. Right. And that's, and that's the thing that changes uh, self-sabotage on any level, like spending or um, diet and exercise people who diet and exercise a lot and they get close to their goal and they self-sabotage. That's a self-esteem issue. Mm. There is something about their subconscious mind that doesn't believe that they deserve it. Mm. And they go back to that thermostat thing, right? They go back to where they're comfortable and that's all where your subconscious beliefs are. Right. So that's, yeah. that's how it shows up, but it's love that saves you because it's the guilt and shame that, um, is the barrier to receiving. So hmm. really powerful work. Uh, what is, uh, this is just my last question. Uh, hopefully tie this up in a, a nice, neat little bow. <laughs> what is your vision of impact and what, in which ways do you seek to make an impact? And what does that look like with maybe your, your customers or maybe even, community or society at large? 
Yeah. So uh, we were talking earlier about how I want to make an impact and I want to take all these principles that I've learned, all these tools, all these, you know, all these strategies that I've learned and package them up in this class. But it's like, it kind of, I kind of envision this self-esteem, this reinvent thing. It can be applied. Like I see such a need for, for teenagers, Mm -hmm. like they're coming up on, you know, against social media that's telling them, there's this idea that we judge our insides based on other people's outsides. Like comparison is the thief of joy, right? Mm-hmm. And these kids, these parents, like this is, we're like the first generation that's having to really, um, you know, we don't really know what the long-term effects of social media is yet. But what I do know and what I have seen is that it's damaging to self-esteem. And so, because it's all this outward focus on the external, right? But social media is just, it's a highlight reel. It's not real. It's not real, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't show any of the negativity. So we have this uh, skewed perception that other people are having these great lives and they're not. And, um, and so anyway, I see this whole reinvent class. I I would, you know, right now I'm focused on um, helping women in recovery, but I see this as a class that can be uh, formatted and fitted to entrepreneurs, to moms, to kids, to teenagers, um, you know, people who uh, go through divorce, they, you know, that's a a real, I I get a lot of people who are, you know, in a lot of pain around relationships, you know, codependency, things like that. So the impact that I would like to have is to present this information in a way that sort of removes some of the prior constraints, like you don't have to be an alcoholic, like you don't have to hit rock bottom, like you don't have to be on the verge of suicide or homicide, right? It's, it's like, I would love to get these basic principles, these strategies, all these things that I teach and um, have it applied to all kinds of different things. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's really what I'm hoping for. I love that. Um, For those that want to reach out and connect with you beyond this podcast, where can they go? Where should they go? (laughs) Yeah, I think the easiest place to find me is at soberlifeschool.com. I do have one-on-one coaching available and there is the self, that's where you can access the self-esteem course. It's, if you want to just look at the class, it's selfesteemcourse.com, a uh, SEO uh, friendly name. (laughs) (laughs) The class is called reInvent, but it is a self-esteem course. So that's what the domain is. Well, and we were laughing earlier that your initials are AA, which is... Very hilarious. <laughs> yeah. That came after I got married. <laughs> yeah. You married into it. I did. Um, well, Arlena, thank you so much for your wisdom and, and your love and empathy today. And uh, again, for those that are wanting to reach out, it's soberlifeschool.com. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care.